So the mere fact that that's up there in the title, that's up there in the thumbnail, and that's over there to my left, really says all that needs to be said about this episode right now. I will admit I'm as surprised as you, assuming you're surprised by this. Last week's episode came extremely close to Lamentation status. Several decent scenes and a good recurrent subplot helped to salvage that one. But there is nothing to salvage this one. The closest thing to a good scene is a scene which isn't incompetent. And that's not enough. Now, by memory, I never liked this episode. Really. But at the same time, I have to admit, I never realized how bad it was until I really started thinking about it. I've decided not to go aggressive about nitpicks, but I could. There are a lot of aspects of this script that basically make no damn sense. Right off the top of my head, one of the things that bugs me most is this species of super-powerful aliens who we've never heard of before and will never see again, who have the ability to choke every single person on the Enterprise-D, except for John, of course, remotely through the shields while at battle-ready status, nevertheless had no idea that John had survived, and yet were zooming from their territory to, to the Enterprise at warp nine-point doom in order to find them as if they knew they were there to find them, while at the same time also being responding to th threats of invasion in their space, keeping in mind that it's also mentioned that it would take them three weeks to get there after it's already been over a month of traveling in the same direction. I mean, there's so many aspects of that entire construction that just make no sense. It's almost like this is an earlier draft of a script. And it is. And that's what I wanted to talk about first. See, Star Trek was in kind of a weird place right now. Season 3 did well. In fact, the ratings would basically peak uh, as of Season 4. I could get you the exact date if I had the numbers in front of me, but I don't, so I'm not going to. Although I guess I could really quickly, so sure, if you really care that much. I actually have those bookmarked right here because I've been referring to Star Trek ratings lately. Uh, yeah, so in between the end of 91 to the beginning of 92 was the highest ratings for Star Trek within this period of history. Obviously up to the conclusion of Voyager, basically. Or Enterprise, excuse me, Enterprise. Now I mentioned that because this is uh, June, I want to say, of 1990. So not at the peak, but basically right before the peak. With the return of Season 4 and Season 4 itself, that's basically the hallmark. Season 4 and Season 5 were the highest ratings for T uh, Star Trek uh, ever. <laughs> At least uh, prior to the introduction of Discovery and whatever they're doing now. I have no idea what the new ratings are or how many viewerships there are and blah, blah, blah. But I point that out because TNG was definitely on a rise... But Paramount was having a really bad ish series of issues at this point, historically speaking. Star Trek V had come out the year prior and bombed. Ignoring the fact that Star Trek V is a film that many people have complicated thoughts about, for and against, the fact of the matter is financially the film did not do well. Paramount also had several other films that had just come out, which also didn't do well. So they were running a little bit more into the red than they were comfortable with. This is also right about the time which a particular recession was hitting the entire planet. Uh, some of you may or may not remember that recession, actually. I wasn't super involved in it, but it was one of the first recessions that I have any memory of since it did affect most of my family, and I was actually old enough to understand what they were talking about at the time. In addition to all of this, about a month prior to this episode coming out, so probably a little bit after the construction of this episode, they had started work on Star Trek VI. 
Now, when I say started work, I mean the beginnings of starting work. I mean, they had sat down and started doing scripting work. This is actually back when they were still doing the Academy story in order to keep the budget down for Star Trek VI. But I mention all of this because this is also happening during the production of Season 3 of TNG, which, if you remember, I already mentioned, was actually a very troubled period. They, they, they cycled out two different mainliners, showrunners, excuse me, when it came to Season 3. They lost multiple writers permanently, including Melissa Snodgrass, and uh, had technically Ira Stephen Barrow, but he wasn't lost permanently, obviously he would come back later, and Ronald D. Moore, who would also come back later. And the, the, the whole behind-the-scenes thing was just this, this weird cycle of doom. Mostly, I still suspect, mostly in the wake of the political infighting of Season 2, which I've already talked about as well. But all of this means that Star Trek was in a weird place. So what we got in Season 3 was two things. Episodes that are some of my favorite episodes of the entire show, that are brilliant, amazing, fantastic, well-written, well-acted, well-directed, and then this kind of crap. I mentioned that this is an earlier draft. I want to stress that I mean that literally. For those of you who are not aware, who have never heard me say this before, scripts usually go through about seven overall versions, from original script to second draft to third draft to handing it off to the writing crew and doing a polished draft. And then we have to do, uh, I can't remember the actual proper term for it, please forgive me, but there's another term for that. And then you have to do another draft, and then there's the teleplay, and then finally there's the version that actually goes on the scripts that is handed out to the actual actors and director. It might not have been seven, I wasn't counting, but it's about seven versions of the script. This feels like version three or two. Like, you could tell some of the ideas are interesting and definitely there, but this is, this, this, this has the, 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 the scent of earlier amateur work on it. And again, I don't have to speculate on that. We know this is true. Rene Echeverria was actually brought in to work on this script. I've actually mentioned him before. This is his second work for Star Trek ever, a man who would go on to do many, many episodes of Star Trek in the future, some very good ones too. So it's not like I blame him. Quite the contrary, he was brought in to basically be a script doctor. This also ties into the whole financial thing I'm talking about. You see, as I mentioned Paramount in general and the executives and Star Trek in specific were kind of in a weird place right here. And again, there was a recession going on. So they had basically burnt out all of their budget for season three, except for what they had set aside. And you know what they set aside for, but in case you don't, we'll talk about it next week. So they had what was effectively no budget left at this point in time. So what they did was they went back to the, the vault with all of the old scripts that they had bought, and they were just like, pick one! As I've talked about before, it was common practice back in the day for studios, especially television studios, to basically just buy scripts en masse. And uh, writers could send in scripts, and they'd get a little bit of a pittance for it, and if they actually wrote the episode or, or produced the episode, they'd get a little bit more kickback for having the episode actually be made. You know, Very common practice. It was also one of the cheapest and easiest ways to get a script out now. To use a weird parallel, how many of you have ever played or GM'd for Dungeons & Dragons or any other form of pen and paper kind of RPG game? RPG game? Role-playing game. I imagine at least some of you have or are aware of it. So imagine the difference between sitting down with your friends as the GM and coming up with a whole new adventure which you have invented. It's a unique world, a unique story. Or, you know, pulling out a module and running your friends through the module. Now, some people get elitist about this. I do not. But this is much quicker and much easier than coming up with something from scratch. It will also help you to keep track of things better. That's kind of the same general parallel. It's like, okay, here's a script. All right, let's just make the script workable. Let's go, let's go, let's go. 
The lack of budget really shows in this episode, though. The location shot that they have is almost at season one levels of quality. And I have to admit, if I could just be blunt for a second, I was really debating the lamentation thing like the whole episode. There are one, two, three, hang on, one, two, three, four, five little notes on my notes here. For moments when I was so bored, I had nothing else to talk about, so I kind of invented something to talk about, including what we're talking about right now. You notice we haven't touched the episode yet. So I mentioned that because this was an incredibly boring episode. And so one of the things I found myself doing was I'm just sitting here with nothing to say and nothing to write, and I'm just... And I found myself thinking, does this qualify as lamentation status? And that's always a question I apply case by case. There's no rules for that. It's just, is this bottom of the barrel? Because it's a very boring episode, which is badly presented and badly executed. But, I mean, does that qualify as lamentation status? Then it got to the point where John was walking around in tight white nylon. And that cinched it. I know that sounds like a stupid thing, but ultimately it wasn't that itself, but that was indicative of the rest of the episode. This is the first draft. This is the kind of thing that I would expect out of TOS, or Season 1 TNG. Something that I could explain away if this was an earlier period of history, quite literally. Because, and if I want you to do me some, a favor, for those of you who don't remember this episode, I want you to either watch it again really quick and just skip to the end. It's at like the 40-minute uh, mark or so. 42-minute, something like that. Or, if you don't happen to have the episode uh, handy, I want you to go to Memory Alpha, look up the episode Transfiguration, Season 3, Episode 25, and I want you to look at it. I got it up on the second monitor right now. There's a picture. It's the, it's the picture for the episode, and it's got Riker, Picard, uh, and then there's Crusher, and then there's a guy in a bright yellow nylon suit, and it's so obvious that's what it is. Like, they put a little bit of a lighting effect on it, but it is so amazingly obvious that that is someone in a goddamn nylon costume, and it looks cheap and bad. And that's this episode in a nutshell. Cheap and bad. Oh, and boring. I actually had the thought as I was looking at it, I was like, is this like old Doctor Who? Anyways. <clears throat> so. Then we cut to Christy Henshaw. Now, this is weird. This is Christy Henshaw. Now, if you don't know what that means, back in the episode Booby Trap, one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek... Um, Jordy was trying and failing miserably to romance Christy Henshaw. Now, I point that out because I always assumed back in the day when I used to rewatch these shows that it was just the same actress. That's a fairly common thing, bringing a guest star back to play another role. But in this case, they actually name-drop her in this episode, which I had forgotten, just like they name-dropped her back in that episode. So it is actually the same character. So for whatever reason... From back then to here, she has suddenly decided she is actually romantically interested in Jordy for whatever reason. And he is still his usual bumbling self. That's nice. He forms the C-plot of the episode. Yes, really. We've actually got three plots in this boring dreck of an episode. It's very simple. Worf is like, you should be more of a man. And Jordy's like, I don't know what to do because I'm bumbling. And I will admit... There's a bit right at the beginning where Jordy is, you know, Christy comes over to talk to Jordy, and Jordy's like, Hi, blah, blah, blah. you know, girl, girl, going off in his head. And Worf's Michael Dorn is just sitting there like, just exasperated expression on his face, just like, oh my God, Jordy, Jordy. Ah. Uh. So then Jordy 
walks with the others down the light. And his, I want you, I really hope some of you rewatch this episode either before or after these ruminations because there's a lot of little details I want to point out. Oh, well, not a lot. There's like five. But as he's walking, Jordy has his hand weirdly like attached at about waist level. And you notice there's a prop there. Now I point this out because I decided to do a little looking into this. They literally didn't have the budget to set up a proper prop for his, like the waistband thing or the holster thing that he should have. So LeVar Burton had to physically hold a prop to his waist as if it's attached there and just keep it there and not let it shuffle around as he's walking down the corridor for that one scene and for the immediately following scene so that it would look like he was coming with equipment to this away mission. Remember, like I said, they were basically out of money when they made this episode. So the seams really show, like I was talking about earlier. This is funny because then they cut to John. Now, they actually did a really good job with John. In fact, this this episode... Uh, some people were hoping they would get an Emmy nod for this episode because of the uh, visual effects of John as he was dead. Funny thing, back in the old days, in the old CRT TVs and even on the DVD version, most people didn't even see the full extent of the work because they only showed it for a few, like, seconds. But if you pay attention, and it's very obvious on the Blu-ray, he's literally missing an arm. His teeth are showing through his skin, as in this part of his face is gone, and his brain is exposed. It's actually decent makeup work. It's a shame because they apparently only did it for that one scene and then moved on. And I have no idea where they got the budget for that. But then again, they do also attach a device directly to the brain. So what the hell do I know? Anyways. <clears throat> so. <laughs> one of the original pitches for one of the original versions of this script. There were two original versions of the script, by the way. Just, just, just to add to the problem. One was about uh, they, they found someone who had died in a horrible crash you know, way, way earlier, and using modern medicine, they were able to bring them back. And the other one was more about the people who were mutating because of pollution, and it was supposed to be this big heavy-handed episode, and then he changed it around to be less heavy-handed, and that was also ejected. <laughs> but either way, I bring that up because one of the things that I kind of liked the idea of was this whole medical marvel to showcase the amount of medical tech that Star Trek has. As I've said many, many times before, one of the most impressive advancements in technology that Star Trek has in general and the Federation has in specific is medical. No, he's fixing himself because he's an energy being, or at least he's going to be. Spoiler alert. Talk more about that later. Um, so then Jordy gets the energy thing. And an energy thing beams into his head. So naturally, they constantly talk about how they, do a, they have to do a bioscan to fix him. Obviously nothing working, and Jordy constantly insists that he's fine. And then, well, we'll talk more about that in a second. So then, cut to ten forward. I'm just kind of running through this because there's so little to talk about in the specifics. Worf, you know, more up the hall. Come on, let's go. And then Jordy, who is now... <laughs> Of course, the episode had to introduce an alien influence to make Jordy self-confident enough to ask a girl out for a date. Now, I've been there. <laughs> I'm sure many of you have, too. But I don't think I ever needed an alien energy beam to literally give me the ability to be sufficiently self-confident. Because let's be clear, Jordy's a catch, okay? He's a kind Friendly guy, he's affable, he's funny, he's smart, he's driven, dedicated, and frankly, LeVar Burton's fairly attractive. At least he was. I don't know what he looks like nowadays. 
He's a catch. Oh, he's also a lieutenant commander and chief engineer of the frickin' Enterprise. So if you care about the career aspirations, he's basically already got it made now. The fact that he has to have that kind of self-confidence, I'm with that. The fact that an alien has to beam it into his brain is so hilarious, it's actually kind of sad. Uh, but anyways, so then we hit my first star point at the 15 minute 30 second mark. We're 15 minutes into this episode, about a third of the way into the episode. And I have got nothing to talk about. Like, obviously, I've been talking about a couple things. This is actually technically our second star point, excuse me. But I bring that up because that was it was just so boring. So I decided to latch on to ideas that aren't really specific this episode to talk about because it's my job. And I do try to do the best job I can for you guys. Thank you all for your continued support. Please, please don't leave me. Oh, God. Amnesia. He has amnesia. Now, I have seen fiction use amnesia properly. I, th I can think off the top of my head of one example. I believe on stream we've come up with like three. I don't remember all of them off the top of my head. But in general, fiction doesn't use amnesia properly. You know what fiction uses amnesia for? Keeping things from the audience. That's it. That is the purpose of amnesia in fiction, is to make sure amnesia... I know I'm saying that kind of weird, sorry. That's the purpose of it in fiction, is to, is to keep the audience in suspense. And constantly in this episode, he's like, I just don't remember. I need to do this, but I don't remember my. This is good, but I don't know why. This is bad, but I don't know why. I need to do this, but I don't know why. It, he repeats that so often that I actually legitimately feel that if this script had had ver further drafts, his dialogue would have been varied a little bit. So he basically isn't repeating the exact same line, in some cases, over and over throughout the episode. Amnesia, in this case, is probably not something I would have gone with, personally. Especially since it is, again, only being used to keep the, the suspense until the big reveal right at the end, which is another way this feels like an old episode, by the way. As an aside, I decided to jot down, down some numbers, because I'm a weirdo. The amnesia lasts for 24 minutes and 30 seconds. That means at the 40-minute mark is when he finally loses his amnesia, and at about the 42-minute mark is when he finally info-dumps. This is a 44-minute episode, or 45-minute episode, excuse me. It's, very, it's not that long. So, <laughs> I, I don't know how to properly explain how much this bothers me. I know this seems like a mild thing to, to latch on to, but it bothers me because it's basically like, hey, what's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Oh, oh, you have to go? Oh, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's, some, it's some floss. You built it up too much. You drew my attention to it, to, to it too much. And you didn't make the payoff anything interesting. The overwhelming majority of this episode is spent with him basically reiterating the point over and over that I'm a mystery and nothing actually informative. <sighs> So, Jordy starts acting differently. Okay, um, I'm just going to bring up really quick that every time someone acts differently, people tend to not notice. Moving on. I do want to mention something. At the beginning of the episode, they, they do something that would sound smart, if not for what I'm about to bring up. And they establish that the Enterprise has nothing going on. Like, this is a peaceful period of time for the Enterprise. They've got... Their, their books are cleared, which is great because the Borg are about to invade. But regardless, it's a good time for the Borg to invade when you're otherwise not busy dealing with Romulans or Klingons or God knows what. Or Husnok. Anyways, <clears throat> so their, their books are cleared, so to speak. 
And then there's a scene where Jordy is smooching on Henshaw, and Riker is amused by it, and there's a surprisingly decent amount of exposition uh, about the fact that it's been basically a month. One whole month. Since the episode started. Please process that. Because the episode doesn't emphasize this point, but the facts in the episode... Again, I'm not drawing from some external source here. In the episode, they make it clear it's been about a month since the episode started. Now, on the one hand, that's logical, because this guy went through horrific levels of damage. He's been in medical care for literally weeks. That makes sense. But on the other hand, that means that Jordy... And, he, and and Christy have been going out for months, or excuse me, weeks at this point, with no issue. The Enterprise has been sailing in this direction with nothing going on for weeks, with no issue. And this is the important part. They've had this science doohickey thing for weeks, for about a month. And they've actually been working on it in, the, in basically that whole time. And they have yet to crack any of the information from it. It's just that far beyond them. I roll to disbelieve. Anyways, then O'Brien comes in. We establish that O'Brien has a dislocated shoulder and likes kayaking. Once again, we have something that will become a regular feature of Star Trek, and this will be a constant thing in DS... Not constant, but a repeating thing in Deep Space Nine, his, his shoulder problems and his love of kayaking. And once again, something that will be a repeating element on Deep Space Nine is established in a bad episode of Star Trek TNG. I, I'm just weirded out by that, but whatever. And so the guy's like, here, let me heal you. Whee, you're healed. Don't worry, you'll never dislocate that shoulder again except for the 30 other times. So in the month, they haven't figured out the computer thing, but they do figure out the computer thing. This one scene is the only thing that made me really question the lamentation status. The scene where they deduce what's going on with the alien Nava computer. And I say that because it has no techno babble, which is surprisingly smart, especially for an episode that is, well, let's be honest, not very well constructed in terms of its script. But there is no technobabble in that scene, and that's good. Credit where credit is due. They just kind of logic their way through the situation. Okay, well, let's wa watch the gravity patterns. Okay, let's assume this gravity is indicative of these kind of stellar phenomenon. Okay, let's assume these are indicative of notations of rotation of the phenomenon. Okay, is there any phenomenon like that around here? Bam! We now have a point of reference, and we can now translocate the two charts onto each other. That's very logical, and I like it. Credit whoever wrote that scene. Then, they mentioned it'll take us three weeks to get to that star system. Again, I want you to keep that in mind, because it's already they've already been traveling in this direction for four weeks, at least, by the way. I want to stress they're kind of vague about it, but it's at least a month. So, another three weeks to go into that location. Which means they were about seven weeks away from wherever the hell they were going from, which is a hell of a way to, to run. And then, of course, well, then things get interesting. So John Doe goes to Ten Forward. Why is Ten Forward so small? How many of you guys have ever lived... This is another of my star points of boringness, by the way, because I have nothing to talk about for like another ten minutes of episode. How many of you ever lived in one of those apartment complexes where they have like a community area? Sometimes it's indoors, sometimes it's outdoors, right? And you know how in some of the cheaper complexes, those are really small? to the point where they can maybe house like five, ten people at once, and that's about it. Like any more than that, it's going to get uncomfortably crowded. For some reason, that's always kind of bothered me about Ten Forward. In fact, as we see in Star Trek Generations, the film, uh, Star Trek Seven, 
it's basically full to the brim. And that's what just kind of made me wonder. They have this one spot for social gathering and eating and you know, public eating and public drinking for a ship with a crew of about a thousand. As I've related this before, and I stand by this analogy, this is basically an apartment complex in space, right? A little neighborhood in space. Why is Ten Forward so small? I know that's just such a weird thing to talk about, and obviously the real reason is because they don't have room for a large set. But in-universe, what's the explanation for it being so small? Especially given that this is the golden era of winds of change when they crafted the Galaxy-class cruiser, and in so doing it would make sense that they would want to have this be a large thing. I mean, it's so logical for this to be an era in history where people can just relax and chill on a, on a spaceship, especially in a place that's actually very tactically vulnerable. Sure, we're not at war with anyone right now. I don't know, food for thought. So, um, you know, John Doe's like, I gotta get off the ship, oh god, oh god. Why? I don't know! <laughs> I would love to see an MST3K of this episode, by the way. And like, every time he says that, the, 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 three, the two robots and the guy are like, I don't know! Every time. Anyways, I, I can just picture it in my head. Just picture me down here as a silhouette. I don't know. Uh, he tries to get off the ship, and he accidentally injures Worf, and Worf freaking dies! I'm not even going to bring up the fact that that contradicts later episodes and earlier episodes with regards to Klingons and how durable they are and redundant systems and all that fun stuff. Instead, I'm just going to comment on the fact that he broke his neck and died instantly. No life signs. Um, that's not even how humans work. We will still be functional for a little while and can still be restored despite the fact that we just snapped our neck. I mean, it's, it's, there's a pretty good chance we're going to die from that. But with their kind of tech, you know. And so he jumps down and he restores him from the dead. Because, well, because he's basically got Q powers. I mean, really, that is how it's presented in the episode. Where are the Q with this whole episode, anyway? I mean, you'd think they'd care about a new energy being entering the park, so to speak. But I don't know. So... I do have to say one thing. There's this brief scene, as ever, credit to Gates McFadden, who is a good actress when she's allowed to be, where she says, she's, she's chasing after John and she stops for a moment. And she gets this concentrated expression on her face and she says, security. And there's like a regret in her voice when she says it. It's a very minor touch, but it is actually a nice touch because you can tell she doesn't want to do this, but she's going to because her sense of responsibility and professional duty outweigh her you know, personal feelings on the matter. Oh, yeah, by the way, I mentioned uh, the two scripts this is supposed to be. Originally, this is supposed to be a love story between Crusher and John Doe. It kind of still is, but mostly they got rid of all of that. Anywho. <clears throat> so, then they have a big scene where they discuss how he doesn't know. I'm serious, that's all that's discussed in that scene is that he doesn't know. And he comes out and Jory just rushes down and's like, hey... You gave me something. Thank you. And then he says, don't worry. I helped you find something you already had. I'm not going to make fun of Jordy again. But I do want to comment on something. Because actually that, strangely enough, makes sense for the way his healing power has been portrayed thus far. Because he doesn't have the power of alteration. He has the power of restoration. To use more Elder scrolls kind of ways of putting this. In other words, I cannot, with this power, grant you a functional third arm. But I can restore the arm that used to be there after it was chopped off. Make sense? In other words, restoring it to the default template. Restoring it to what it should be, what it's designed to be. Um, 
it's just it's just a little thought I had, and because I've thought a lot in over the years about the exact nature of how healing magic works, uh, especially when it comes to fictional settings, and my own setting in particular, because I want to figure out how things work in order to justify and figure out how things should work in the future with specific interactions and other things, blah, blah, blah. It's just something I wanted to bring up, because... I, at first, I was thinking, well, this is interesting. His powers are limited to restoration, basically. And then he just kind of goes full Q on us towards the end, so I take that back anyways. <clears throat> so then the Zalconian ship shows up. Once again, I remind you that they are warping over here at speed doom for no stated reason. He flat out states that he they actually thought that he was dead. The best excuse I could come up with this, and I'm sure someone will say this in the comments, is that they were actually showing up to find the Enterprise, which was in their territory, even though they're three weeks out. So you'd think if they were that territorial of a species who wants nothing to do with anyone externally, they'd have ships that are closer than frickin' forever away, but whatever, whatever. And then they're like, hey, and of course this random enemy ship from a species we've never heard from before, or never will again, is not only physically a match for the Galaxy-class cruiser, but also has the super doom power of being able to choke everyone to death and prevent them from being able to breathe, despite multiple species that they've never encountered before across the entire ship. This is magic. Let's just call this what it is, okay? They have magic. They cast Asphyxiation 7 on the Enterprise. Let's just be blunt about this. So then John, you know, restores Crusher. And then there's a scene which I was about to eviscerate. It's only slightly dumb, though, because they run down the corridor, and he kneels down and helps one person. And my first thought is, oh, God, don't tell me he's going to try to help every thousand person on the ship individually. But then, no, he just decides to push his healing energy through the entire vessel as his Q powers up, you know, level up. He is now John Destructor which is normal and ghost type. Uh, so, <laughs> I will give them credit on this. There's one scene. Now, okay, when they were doing the Blu-ray versions of this episode, they actually touched up the effects on several scenes. Obviously, they couldn't do anything about the nylon because there's just nothing you can do about that. But they did touch up quite a few effects. And one of those was, there's a bit where the camera's behind John and he's looking at the view screen and has the full view of the bridge. He gestures, and then the guy goes from the bridge of the other ship to the bridge of this ship. Now, you can kind of see the composites. actually three shots composited together. But it was still well executed. I just wanted to give some praise where this episode deserves it, because it deserves so very little. So then he reveals, no, it's okay. It's the next step in our evolution. You've been killing and, and torturing us for years. Exposition, exposition. My name is Dumbledore, and I'll be seeing you around. So he sends him back, and the other ship leaves, despite the fact that they'd actually been given orders to fire before this whole conversation happened. Let's just ignore that for a second. And then he's like, oh, you're all awesome. Peace! And then he leaves. And everyone acts like this is a wonderful thing. This brings me to my final my con final comment here, and that would be the episode Hide and Q. You remember that episode? Because I will never forget that episode because it pissed me off, and it still does to this very day. I plan to never watch that episode again, unless I do like a watch-through of someone who's never seen all the episodes and then I'll watch it for their sake, but... Yeah, so Hide and Q. You remember that one where they were like, you shouldn't have the power of the Q, and they never actually explained why? That one. So apparently everyone's just totally cool with someone having the power of the Q, as long as it's someone named John Doe who's in a yellow latex. God, the yellow latex suit looks so, so gross. I shouldn't say latex. That's inaccurate. It's actually nylon. Um, but uh, it looks so bad. Um, and I just wanted to bring that up really quick 
because I don't have anything else to say about this episode. It's bad. It's boring and it's cheap. But we all know it's coming next week. Before I end this lamentation, I want to say something. Obviously, these ruminations and lamentations are generally done with the episode in specific in mind. Due to the nature of these episodes and Star Trek in general, I usually don't get to talk about this in concept of the entirety of the franchise, the entirety of the work. This isn't Babylon 5, for example, or Farscape, as we'll later do some year. But I mention that because I have a philosophical question for you. And I would love to hear your guys' thoughts, as I always do, in the mornings on Mondays and Tuesdays and Fridays. If you guys had the choice of making Transfigurations better and Best of Both Worlds Part 1 worse, or keeping Transfigurations awful and maintaining the quality of Best of Both Worlds 1, which of these two options would you choose? Because i got to be completely blunt, while there is a lot of luck involved in the quality of Best of Both Worlds Part 1, and we'll talk about that next week, I'm kind of glad that they kept all that budget and kept all that time and kept all that effort for that cliffhanger finale, rather than spreading it out a little bit more as the season started to wear on and they started to just run out, as the well just started to run dry. Call me a weirdo for thinking that, but I guess I am a weirdo. I hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.